Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Scott Birkin is the best-selling author of books on many subjects, including The Myths of Innovation, Confessions of a Public Speaker, and perhaps the most interesting title, The Year Without Pants. His work as a writer and public speaker has appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, Wired Magazine, Fast Company, Forbes Magazine, and other media. He has taught creative thinking at the University of Washington and has been a frequent commentator on CNBC, MSNBC, and National Public Radio. His popular essays and entertaining lectures are free at scottburkin.com, and that's S-C-O-T-T-B-E-R-K-U-N.com, where you can sign up for a monthly email of all of his recent and best work. You can follow him on Twitter at at Birkin. Again, that's at B-E-R-K-U-N. Scott, we're here to talk to you about this really cool little book entitled The Dance of the Possible, The Mostly Honest, Completely Irreverent Guide to Creativity. Welcome to AMA Edgewise. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. By the way, the book itself is, I'm going to do a quick, it's like a back pocket book, really. I mean, you just stick it in your pocket and carry it around with you. It's about, I'm going to say about two and a half to three inches by maybe five and a half to six inches. And it's just really neat little stuff it in your back pocket and go. And I have to tell you, I read this book, I don't want to say one sitting because I was literally standing. I was pacing in my office when I was walking back and forth and I read the whole thing in about, I'm going to say not quite 90 minutes. And it was just, I I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was really a lot of fun. What brought you to write this book? Well, you just identified exactly what the aim was. I wanted to write a short little book that was practical and based on lots of life experience with working with ideas that didn't fall into all the traps that lots of these books usually do, of trying to promise magic solutions and killer secrets, and there's one little trick that makes idea generation easy. All that stuff has never helped me in my career as a writer, and my career as a writer and and someone who works with ideas all the time. So I wanted to write a book that was really honest, really short, very fun, and that got at the root of what makes this hard, rather than just playing with the branches. So that was the motivation. It was a book I wish I had read. 20 years ago, and I wanted to write it so that other people wouldn't have to struggle through all the things I had to struggle with to get to this point. Why must creativity be actionable? You talk a little bit about sort of the doing side of creativity versus the the thinking side of it. Is that correct? I mean, does creativity have to be actionable? Well, it, it doesn't It doesn't have to be. I mean, plenty of people get value out of daydreaming and thinking of things that they may never do and just playing with ideas in their head. That's totally fine. That may be a kind of meditation. But if we're talking about having an effect on the world or having an effect on your business, helping your customers or doing anything that we want to have an impact on other people, then now it's just thinking of creativity as an action. That The word create is a verb. It means, it means to build something, to make something, to put something in the world. And that is a very helpful way to think about what the hard parts are. Coming up with ideas for a new kind of software or a new product, coming up with ideas is really not that hard. It's when you take that idea now to try to manifest in the world, you're dealing with budgets or politics or schedules. Now you're dealing with the real hard part of creative work. And thinking of it in those terms, I think, simplifies the challenges a great deal. You don't have to be a genius to develop a good idea for something. You have to be willing to make things and try things and experiment, and that's where you learn the insights you need to, to finish projects, is actually going and doing the work. Now, in the book, you make a strong case for keeping a journal 
does this journal have to be a real notebook, you know, pen or pencil to paper, or would software and or some devices fulfill the same purpose and provide equitable results? The goal for the journal is to make up for our terribly flawed memories. We, we really have terrible, terrible human memory. Our brains really don't remember things very well. We, we like to imagine that our memories are like film strips where everything is recorded, but that's not how it works. Lots of stuff comes across our mind. And we, oh, that's interesting. We'll, think we'll have a little moment like a flash of it. Oh, that's an interesting idea. And then it goes away and we'll never, we'll possibly never hear of it or think of it again. And so we're keeping a journal is an essential habit that writers and engineers and musicians, most of them have some way that they record things that come across their mind. So the goal is simply retention and the medium doesn't matter. Everyone has different preferences for how they like to record things. I'm a writer, so I actually like to write. The journal I keep, I keep a journal on paper. I also keep a journal on a word processor. I know other writers and creative people who keep a journal with a voice recorder, that when they're driving in traffic, commuting to work, they'll just put on their phone, some idea comes across their mind, they'll push a button, and they'll just say it out loud. The method doesn't matter, and I always recommend people just, you need to experiment to find whatever method or medium has the least friction for you as a person. But it doesn't matter. As long as it's a habit that you keep, then you have the opportunity to come back and review those ideas, and you'd be surprised how many good ones have come across your mind that you forgot about. Scott, I have a terrible confession to make, and I might as well do it to you as anybody else, but but I uh, I buy notebooks, and I have a whole bunch of them at home, and I have some at work, and I hardly ever use them. I mean, what's up with that? You know, I mean, I have the best intentions, but I just, you know, I, it's, it's, I think it's a perfection thing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, well, that, I think that is part of the psychological trap that a lot of people fall into, and that to put something down, there's this burden that it has to be meaningful, it has to have potency, and there's a fear of putting things down that aren't really that good. But that, that that's something that you have to get around. And the reason you have to get around it is because for these journals, or whatever, whatever format it is, it could be a notebook, a notepad, a document on your word process, or whatever, no one else is going to see it but you. So... If you're afraid of putting things in it, then there's a psychological question that you're probably afraid of what's going to come out of your mind. And if you're someone who wants to be more creative or wants to develop more ideas, you have to fall in love with your mind. You have to be really excited about what comes out of it, what surprises are going to come out of your mind when you let it loose on a piece of paper. And so there's an attitude there that needs to shift because you need to be comfortable with what things your mind comes up with. You want to encourage your mind. You want to develop that, that instinct. And so I have a huge pile of journals that are empty, but it's right next to another pile next to it that, that they're mostly full. Mm-hmm. I go through phases where I'm using, it more, I'm using my journals more actively, but I always know that if I'm working on a project where I feel like I want to be more creative, I have to make sure that journal is with me all the time. And I keep it in my pocket, and then I have no excuse for not using it because it's with me. Mm-hmm. Some might argue that your insights into using diagrams or drawings is counterintuitive. You know, they, they sometimes provide immediate insight, but they can be seriously light on contextual detail. Can you comment on that observation? I have a general complaint about business books in that they are in a rush to oversimplify and to give the reader the illusion of a five-step process for doing things. And books on creative thinking or innovation fall into the same trap, that they're often labeled and billed as, here's the six steps for breakthrough change, or here's the 10, the 10 tricks to you know, radically improve the performance of your team. And that can't be, it can't be like that. It, it can't be that simple. 
And often the, the, how they get away with it is one of those steps is usually something really, really hard that they describe as, as being really easy. And so uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is this fantastic framework for thinking about creative thinking by Macaulay Csikszentmihalyi, and he has a five-step process for where great ideas come from. One of the steps in the process is basically, and here's where the magic happens. This is a step where all of a sudden the insights come together and you have a great new idea. And he, he makes it sound great. It makes it sound fantastic reading. I'm like, oh, that's step four. But when you're in the actual experience of doing it, the fact that you know the name of the step doesn't make it any easier. And so my critique in the book about diagrams is, as a warning to the reader, right before I used some diagrams in the book, was not to allow themselves to think that simply because it's a cute diagram that explains this, that when they sit down to do it, it's going to be as easy as reading the diagram. It can't possibly be. There has to be more effort and more thinking required for the reader to actually put something into practice. Chapter 9, a very impactful chapter for me, deals with the three gaps, the effort gap, the skill gap, and the quality gap. Can you spend a minute just describing each one of those kind of in a nutshell and how they overlap or maybe bump into each other? Yeah, yeah. Well, the effort gap is something that you talked about actually with your confession a little bit. So the effort gap, let's say you have an idea for something. The, the idea could be a meta idea. It could be that you want to be more productive or you want to be more creative. But just for simplicity's sake, let's say the idea is that you're interested in music and you have an idea for a kind of album you want to make and you want to make a rock opera. You have an idea for a rock opera, great. And you have a couple ideas in your head about the themes of the opera, fantastic. And then you go and you sit down and you start working. And as you start working, you realize that as fond as you are of the idea and as great as the idea is, to write even a draft of the music for this opera is going to take hours. It's going to take days. No matter how good the idea is, there will be hours of work before you're able to even produce a draft. And that's true if you're a novelist. It's true if you're a painter. It's true if you're an entrepreneur. No matter how good the idea is, there's a chunk of effort that you'll have to put in just to even validate the idea is good. And a lot of people have the romantic notion that if their idea is really good enough, they don't have to do that effort. But so the effort gap is something you have to recognize is unavoidable, that every great inventor or musician or entrepreneur throughout history, no matter how talented they were, they had this, this face the same effort gap as well. To validate and prove something well enough to get funding or to get a paper published or a book published, that's number one, the effort gap. Great ideas are one thing, but without the effort, without closing the gap of effort, they're useless. They can't have an impact on the world. The second gap is the skill gap. Let's assume that you get past the effort gap. You're like, yes, I'm committed. I can put an hour a day or three hours a day, whatever the amount of time is every day to develop this idea. Invariably, well, not invariably, but often you discover along the way that you're, even though you're disciplined, you're putting the effort in it, there's a skill that you need that you don't have to manifest the idea. So in the rock opera example, it could turn out that you realize one part of a song should have a solo that's a piano solo. And it turns out that you don't know how to play the piano. You know the idea, you have a concept for it, but there's a skill that you have to develop. Or there's a skill you have to hire for to go and get someone else that has that skill, a pianist, who can manifest the idea for you to include it in the thing that you're making. So that's the skill gap. And for a lot of people, they put the effort in, and they quickly realize they just don't have the skill yet. They have a great idea for a novel, but they're not really that proficient at prose yet. Or they have an idea for a business, but they're not that proficient at marketing yet. And the skills have to develop on top of the ordinary amount of effort. And then the third gap, which is the most subjective, is the quality gap. And this gap is about how do you know when you're done? How do you know that you've made something good enough that's worth putting out into the world, 
or that other people are going to think is good enough to buy. The quality gap is the most subjective one. It's often the most torturous one for people with ideas. The, one of the stories I relate in the book is about Hemingway, one of his most famous books, of Farewell to Arms. He rewrote the end of that book, the last chapter or two, dozens of times. Dozens of times. And he had already been a successful journalist. He was a proficient writer. But he decided for himself each of those drafts was not good enough. It didn't reach the quality bar that he had for the project. So he went and rewrote them. Now, did he need to do it 35 times? Would the 25th time be as good for most of us readers? Probably, maybe. I don't know. It's very subjective. Hard to know. But in his mind, he had an idea for the level of quality he wanted to meet. And until he did, he continued. And so for a lot of people, they have a low-quality bar. Their work is never successful because they're really not aiming at the right level. And then for other people, they're never satisfied. They can write a best-selling book or have a company that makes millions of dollars, but their quality bar for what they wanted is higher than what they achieved. And dealing with that quality gap is something that never goes away. In fact, all three of these gaps are challenges for any creator, no matter how many projects they've done. And that's, that was one of the goals of the book, was to capture these ways of thinking about projects that are evergreen, that no matter how good you are, how successful you've been, every new project demands facing these challenges and these kinds of gaps. This is interesting. This sort of leads into my next question of how do you really know when you're, quote, unquote, done with a project or, or a piece of <laughs> well, work? Yeah, uh, this is a favorite question for me because we have this notion somehow that there's a mathematical formula for this. But then at the same time, we all go to see a movie and a third of the way through the movie, we're thinking, this is terrible. Like, this is not quite done. Like, the, the plot is not really that interesting or the dialogue hasn't, wasn't written that well. And we have judgments of things that clearly the makers of the product thought were good and thought were done. But us as the consumers of it clearly disagree. And that implies something about this question, which is it's very, very subjective. It's tied in a way to the quality gap, but this is a more a broader question, which is what is good? Like, what is a good movie? What is a good product? Is, is United Airlines a good airline? Do they have a good product? We can go around and look at all the movies that are coming out now, the sequels and the blockbusters. Are those good movies? Are they done, really, in terms of living up to the expectations people have for them? I don't know that there's a singular answer. The guidepost, of course, for a creator is that when you sit out on a project, to try to have clear goals about what problem you're trying to solve, whose problem it is, what level of proficiency or quality you're trying to reach, and to live up to those goals and use that as your guidepost for when you're finished or not. But at the end of the day, though, there are great works like The Great Gatsby that will probably be criticized. You can go to the Amazon reviews for The Great Gatsby and find hundreds of one-star reviews for it. So if that's the fate of one of the great classics of literature, that there's always going to be people who think it wasn't done, then we all have to know that no matter how good a job we do with what we make, there are going to be people who have a very different idea of what good is, and they're going to judge it accordingly. Hey, Scott, here at the AMA, we sort of pride ourselves in our noble cause, I'll say. And our noble cause is helping new managers or aspiring leaders, you know, become better at what they do. Many of them have never really led a team of people before. They've been awesome individual contributors, but now they have a mission, they have a purpose, and they're working with a team, they're guiding a team, they're supporting a team. What's in this book, or what can a new manager, or maybe even a manager of a creative team, learn from this book? There's two things. The first is that creative thinking is really best thought of as a kind of thinking, that even if a manager works in an organization that isn't centered on coming with new ideas for things, they're certainly centered on thinking. 
And understanding the, the notions in the book about how you develop ideas and how you try to solve problems, that's central to what every knowledge worker in every organization or corporation in the world deals with on a daily basis. They have to better understand the process by which our minds develop ideas. It's central to their work. It's central to their own decision-making. So I think the book will be useful in giving them a fresh perspective on how good thinking is done and the psychology involved individually and, and between people when they're trying to develop ideas. There's, there's a couple of chapters in the book about feedback and how to get feedback on ideas and how to have conversations about ideas, which is an essential part of how teams collaborate and make decisions. And the second idea, the second thing I'd say about what managers and creative teams can learn is that they're dealing with these forces all the time about trying to come up with new ideas for things and trying to wear them down and make decisions on things. That's where the, the title comes from, The Dance of the Possible. That's my metaphor for how we think about this, how decisions get made. That we're always going back and forth between trying to find more options to consider and then trying to vet them out and eliminate options so we can actually make a decision and go forward. And the central theme of the book is that that dance, shifting back and forth between being more open-minded and then needing to be more closed-minded, that's essential to all progress. It's essential to how all leadership and management in the progressive organization gets done. And the book takes an honest approach to that, that you're never 100% sure when you're done searching for options. You're never completely sure, no matter how much data or mathematics you try to apply to what is essentially a subjective process. But the core of the book, it gives you a framework for talking about those challenges, for recognizing and having a, a language to use to deal with the challenges you face along the way. And given the trends we have in our knowledge worker world, these are more and more essentially the skills that define the difference between a successful project team and one that isn't so successful. We've been speaking to Scott Birkin, talking to him about his new book, The Dance of the Possible, The Mostly Honest, Completely Irreverent Guide to Creativity. This is really a lot of fun, Scott, and good luck with the book. Great. Thanks for having me on. AMA webcasts bring you 60 minutes of thought-provoking insight, specific answers to your management challenges, and conversations with renowned thought leaders. Best of all, they're all free. For a complete schedule of upcoming webcasts, visit the events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. in this program or if you have any comments and questions you'd like to loop back with us on we can be reached at a phone number 212-903-8090 or by email at edgewise at amanet.org that's edgewise at amanet.org edgewise at amanet.org